0: Welcome to great minds and our guest today and it's an extraordinary uh, privilege and pleasure to have you here dr adams is the 20th surgeon general in the history of the united states he served from 2017 to 2021 has now gone back to indiana where you are leading a tremendous series of initiatives that we want to talk about in particular your work around health equity which i think is a fascinating topic And I'm talking about the great Dr. Jerome Adams. So thank you so much for being here, Jerome. It's a pleasure to see you once again. We've been lucky enough to have you on the Advertising Week stage a few times. And we'll talk about your work on the opioid crisis as well. But we are thrilled to have you as we wind down season two here on Great Minds. So a heartfelt welcome.
1: Well, I'm so glad to be here with you on the Great Minds podcast. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating uh, the times we're going through right now. Uh, we're, we're, we were talking uh, before we went live about you and I and just work and, and how our lives have been impacted. Uh, I've got three little kids. Uh, well, they're not so little anymore. They're 17, 16, and 12, but they're school age. And so we're dealing with, with what does school look like in the, uh, in the time of the pandemic. And one thing's for certain, uh, it's never gonna be the same again. Everyone's talking about getting back to normal, we're talking about the new normal, but there's nothing normal about this. And uh, we're, we're, we're in one of these seismic shifts that happen periodically over time. If you uh, uh, remember Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book, we're at one of these times where uh, things are never gonna be the same again. And I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure we optimize the upside. And it seems weird to say there's upside, but there are a lot of positives that have, uh, that have come out of this, and that we do all we can to minimize the harm and the downside.
0: So let's stay with where you just took us, Jerome, which is that notion of going back to normal. And about a year or so ago, maybe a little more, I had a conversation with an old friend of ours who we have a lot of respect for, Ariana Huffington. Yes. And I asked her the sort of almost, I don't want to say standard, but a common question, which is, when do you think we'll get back to normal? And she said sort of what you just said, Jerome. She said, well, I hope never because the old normal wasn't that good. Exactly. You just talked about permanent change and we'll talk about the future of work. And and of course, we'll talk about the pandemic. You're one of very few people uh, who were in the room where it happened as it was all unfolding. Um, But talk about uh, the, you know, the opportunity I guess we have to establish a better normal. And while we're still very much in the midst of this, looking in your crystal ball, how do we start to turn this thing around and create some positive energy in a sea of negativity?
1: Well, uh, I couldn't agree with Ariana more. Shame on us, as a matter of fact, if we go back to the old normal. The old normal was a lack of public health funding in infrastructure. It was a lack of appreciation for the burden that chronic diseases play on our country. And so here, here's what's, what's fascinating, Matt. Uh, if you look at the US and how we fared compared to the rest of the world in terms of COVID, um, a lot of people don't really understand because there's been so much politicization. But we actually didn't fare much worse than any other developed nation when it comes to infection rates. We actually got infected at about the same rate as, as most of Europe. Um, but that said, we had many more people die from, the, from, from, uh, from their infections here in the United States. And so that's the distinction. And why is that? Well, we know that obesity is a big risk factor for dying from COVID. We know that people with diabetes, uncontrolled high blood pressure, um, die at higher rates. And so we really need people to pay attention to their baseline health, making sure they're eating right, making sure they're exercising, making sure They're doing the things that will make them more resilient in the face of any threat that comes their way, and I hope that there's an appreciation for that. Uh, One more area that I think really has um, expanded during the time of COVID in a good way is telehealth. So prior to the pandemic, uh, the federal government paid for about 10,000 telehealth visits per week. At the peak of the pandemic, they were paying for a million telehealth visits per week. And we know that's expanded access, not just to rural care. And what was fascinating is prior to the pandemic, telehealth was limited to to rural engagements um, from a uh, federal reimbursement perspective, but you're an urban person and uh, you're working two jobs, three jobs, you're a single mom. You don't have time to take off and go hop on the subway and uh, and, and go uh, to downtown to go to a doctor's office, but you can pick up your phone You can get on your laptop and schedule that time. And so telehealth has been revolutionized over the last two to three years. And most people who've been able to access their provider through that means have been very appreciative of it. So we want our, our new normal looking forward to be very different than the old normal. We don't want to go back to a time when we were unprepared for and unable to respond to a pandemic. And when it does hit us, that we suffer worse than the rest of the planet does because of our poor baseline health.
0: Okay, so I wanna go back and I wanna, you know, talk about your journey from growing up on a family farm in Mechanicsville to <laughs> the 20th Surgeon General in, our, in the history of our country. It's an incredible journey, but let's stay where you just took us for a moment. One way to interpret it is we're in bad shape as a country. And, you know, I, I go to the imagery of, uh, you know, when you see younger people, and when I was in my early uh, career, I, I had a lot of friends uh, my career was in sports. And then we used to go to Atlantic city when Tyson was heavyweight champion and, you know, saw some great fights down there in the late eighties and early nineties. And you see these people in their thirties, forties, fifties, very overweight on these scooters, you know, mm-hmm. often, you know, putting quarters in off welfare checks that they had cashed. Uh, and that whole cycle, you know, of gambling and poverty. Um, Statistically speaking, is America in worse shape than most com- countries of our size uh, comparatively? Do we know any of that? Sure seems like that imagery of the, of the gluttonous, slovenly, you know, American, uh, loud, et cetera, seems like there's something to a lot of those stereotypes.
1: Well, when it comes to loud, I think they're talking about you New Yorkers. But, um, but, but, but as far as everything else, no, uh, we, we, actually, um, we actually are in worse shape than the rest of the, uh, the developed world, the OECD nations, and, um, and really surprisingly worse than many other countries that, that are ranked below us in terms of income on major health metrics. So, for instance, in 2020, I put out a Surgeon General's call to action on maternal health, pointing out the fact that the US is down near number 20 in terms of other countries, comparable countries uh, for risk of a woman dying uh, while giving birth. And that within the United States, a black woman is two to three times more likely to die uh, around the time of childbirth as a white woman. And it doesn't matter what your income is or your education is. Uh, Serena Williams almost died giving birth, Beyonce almost died giving birth. Allison Felix, Olympic athlete, almost died giving birth. I actually had a a PhD, dual PhD educated colleague of mine who worked at the CDC, black female, died while giving birth a few years ago. And so we are doing much worse. I put out a a call to action in 2020 also on uh, controlling blood pressure. 500,000 people died in 2020 of uncontrolled blood pressure more people died in 2020 of uncontrolled blood pressure than died of COVID. You heard a whole lot about COVID. We declared it a national, a, a, a nationally global emergency and said we need to do everything we can to control COVID, but more people died from uncontrolled blood pressure and you don't hear anything about it. And, and you know, I, I wanna take a step back because a lot of times we do blame it on the individual and we call it uh, you know, people being slovenly people Um, not doing what they're supposed to do. But that ties into my work now at Purdue University as the director of health equity. And health equity is making sure everyone has the resources, the opportunities to make healthy choices. And not everyone has those same opportunities. So I'll give you a a very real example. I have a 12 year old daughter. My daughter likes to be on her iPhone a little bit too much. And uh, if she's on that phone too much, I say, put the phone down, go outside, ride your bike, I don't wanna see you for a half an hour. And you know what, that makes me a great dad if I do that in the environment that I live in. I can drive 10 miles to downtown Indianapolis and if I did the exact same thing, I'd be accused of child neglect because they don't have complete streets, um, because it's a dangerous neighborhood, uh, because there are so many other um, impediments to my 12 year old daughter being able to safely go out and ride her bike and get fresh air. And so we, we have different opportunities in different communities for health and health equity is really about trying to make sure people can eat better, people can exercise more, people can go to the doctor, people can get vaccinated. And that's what we're missing here in the United States. So final point I'd make on this topic to you, when you hear over and over and over again, people say that the U.S. spends more money on healthcare than any other country, but gets terrible results. That's true. But here's what you don't get behind that. When you look at places like Switzerland, when you look at places like Canada, when you look at um, uh, places like France, they actually spend about the same amount of money keeping people healthy as we do. We just spend it all on downstream healthcare. We wait till you get sick. We wait till you fall off the bike. We wait till you um, get cancer. We wait till you have your heart attack. And then we try to keep you alive. And that's incredibly expensive. And those other countries, they spend that money upstream. They spend it on things like making sure everyone can can afford to eat uh, a healthy diet. They spend it on things like paid leave for uh, moms and fathers so that you're not rushing back to work soon after you've had a complicated pregnancy. Uh, They spend it on on things like creating green spaces so people can go out and safely exercise. And when you do that, it really does prove true that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And fortunately, uh, they're paying for uh, prevention. Unfortunately, we're waiting till people get sick and then trying to pay for the cure.
0: And how much of this, Doc, do you think is driven by the dominance now for young people in particular, of digital culture and gaming. You know, I'm about 10 years older than you, I'm 57. I think you're a give or take about 47. When I was a kid, I remember the president's council on fitness was a big deal. I and mean, we were in elementary mm-hmm. school and everybody wanted to get that certificate. Um, you know, and we really, after school, whenever we ended three o'clock for three hours, we were running around, we were on our bicycles, we were playing sewer to sewer, you know, touch football. We were, we were doing basketball, stickball, whatever we were doing. Um, Today's kids are sitting on a couch.
1: Hmm. Well, that's absolutely your take on all that. It's, it's a fascinating issue that you bring up because number one, every generation of parents um, in the history of this earth feels like their kids' generation is the worst generation ever. So, you know, uh, we, we do have to accept the fact that, uh, that, that number one, uh, these kids will figure it out like we figured it out, like, like, our, like our parents and grandparents figured it out. And, and what I mean by that is just as, as there are downsides to this new digital world, there are potential upsides. There are, you know, it, it's increasing interaction. When you look at Pokemon Go, as long as you don't go out and get hit by a car, that's actually a way of encouraging people to get out. And about it's helping people learn more about the world and, and trying new things so there's potential there we just have to leverage. That potential in order to uh, actually get more people outside but but what's also interesting is you talk about being outside and physical activity and I. Completely I think it's more important more important for your mental health than your physical health to be outside. And be around other people but what's interesting is when you actually break it down the biggest problem we have in the US isn't inactivity; it's our diet. Um, we could do much more by tweaking our diet um, ever so slightly uh, in the United States and by changing the fact that, uh, that, that a lot of profit is driven in this country by feeding us salt, sugar, and fat um, than, we, than we would by increasing people's exercise ever so slightly. And I've found this out as I've aged and so have you. Um, I'm putting on weight as I'm approaching my 50s uh, because I can't outrun a bad, you can't outrun a bad diet. And, you know, I, I can't burn the calories that I'm going to put on by going to the cheesecake factory and having a, uh, a 2,000 calorie meal when the fact is that's all I should be eating in calories in a, uh, in a single day. So uh, one of the things that I'm focusing on at Purdue is really looking at food as medicine, looking at how we can encourage people to eat healthier as a way of, uh, of improving their health. Final point I'd make about the digital technology. And I I said, being outside is important for your mental health. I think something we aren't talking about enough is how addicted people are to their digital devices. So my kids, uh, they can't watch a movie now. One of my favorite things to do with my family is movie night. They can't sit down and watch an hour and a half movie without picking up their phone. We tried it the other night and they literally all had meltdowns. I mean, it's like someone someone who's addicted to, to smoking. And you know what that's like, you know, when, you, when you're around someone who can't, they can't go 15 minutes without lighting up another cigarette. Um, they, they literally, my kids literally can't go 20 minutes without checking their phone to see if they've got a text back or to see if their social media is feeding them back. I'm worried that we aren't appreciating enough the impact that kids are addicted to these digital devices. The same areas that light up in your brain when you do heroin, when you do cocaine, when you're smoking a cigarette, Are the areas that light up when you pick up your cell phone. We need to talk more about that. So
0: during your tenure, you know, the Silicon Valley companies, we're very close to, they're a very big part of our Global Advertising Week family. And I think in so many ways, you know, the miracle of the internet and of these mobile devices. And when we started Advertising Week in 2004, you know, we were still, we were pre-Facebook, the iPhone, that was 2005 or so. The iPhone was 2006. YouTube was 2007. So we were there sort of just as all this was about to happen when we were beginning. And I think the miracle of being able to, you know, buy a plane ticket while you're on the train or book a hotel room or the convenience, you know, order. My office gets a little cold in the afternoon. And I said, I got to get a heater. You know, I, you know, it'll be here tomorrow. You know, I think exactly all is a miracle. But did you have conversations with the leadership uh, as Surgeon General around the challenges around mental health and young people in particular, and our collective, and I put myself in the category as well, of folks that are addicted to our our handheld uh, gizmos as almost an 11th finger, young kids in particular, but I think all of us to some degree are guilty of that.
1: Well, we talked a lot about addiction. And so during my tenure as Surgeon General, prior to the pandemic, and it's hard to imagine a time prior to the pandemic, the epidemic we were dealing with was the opioid epidemic. Uh, We had a person dying every 11 minutes of an opioid overdose in this country prior to the pandemic. Uh, Unfortunately, that number increased during 2020. Uh, The the, uh, number of people who died of an opioid overdose in the last two years has gone up by 30%. So that's one area of addiction. I also worked with uh, many of your partners out there to ra- raise alarm about the fact that uh, we had an epidemic of youth vaping, um, people consuming nicotine in new and different ways. And another area that, that, that is controversial to some, but not to me, um, the rapid expansion of marijuana use in this country. And uh, I recognize that many people feel it safe, and that they use it recreationally from an adult perspective. Uh, What I would say is just because something is legal doesn't mean it's safe for kids and pregnant women. And so the advisory that I put out on this topic said that no young person and no pregnant woman should be using marijuana. People also don't understand that today's marijuana is is, uh, many times more potent than the marijuana of the Cheech and Chong days. Uh, The THC content of marijuana 10 years ago was about 4%. The new super potent strains that you have out there are 15, 20%. So it's like the difference between a light beer and drinking the same quantity of, uh, of, uh, of vodka, truthfully. And, uh, and then you, you actually concentrate it and vape it, and it can be 80, 90%. That's like drinking grain alcohol. And so uh, we need to understand that there are many different um, forms of addiction. Digital addiction is one of them. But unfortunately, people are using these different addictions to self-medicate away unrecognized, untreated anxiety and depression, and then they uh, use these these, uh, means that aren't healthy, and it feeds on itself. It doesn't actually fix the problem. It creates more problems. So we absolutely need people to think about mental health the same way they do their physical health. Uh, One of the groups I'm working with is the NFL Hall of Fame, uh, and their behavioral health committee uh, trying to lower the stigma around talking about mental health and wellness. You wouldn't feel ashamed to go in and say, I've got a broken ankle or a torn ACL. Why do we feel ashamed to go in and say, I'm anxious or I'm depressed? Uh, We need to normalize mental health and wellness and help people understand addiction is a medical issue and uh, there are effective treatments, but only if people are willing to raise their hand and say that they need help. Great. All
0: right. We're going to come back to almost all of this Uh, because you touched on so many uh, relevant, uh, interesting areas. But let's go back and talk a little bit about you. You grew up on a farm. Uh, Did you... Have any inkling as a young man, when I was a young kid, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then I learned quickly that I was not very good when I took biology in high school. I think it was in ninth or 10th grade and I, you know, took a different path. Was was this something that was always of interest to you? Did you want to pursue a career in medicine?
1: Well, it's an interesting question because I grew up uh, as a kid who had pretty severe asthma and about one in 10, one in 12 people in the United States have asthma, so I know many of your listeners can relate to this. And I um, grew up in a rural area, so we didn't have access to, to uh, the best treatment where I grew up. The first helicopter ride I ever took in my life was uh, to, to Washington Hospital Center because I was literally dying in my rural emergency room and they couldn't, they couldn't um, bring me back. And so they flew me to Washington Hospital Center to, uh, uh, to be able to be treated at, at the Children's Hospital in, in Washington DC. And so um, uh, I spent a lot of time in the hospital and seeing doctors. What's interesting is I never dreamed I could be a doctor when I was growing up. Never dreamed it. Why? Because I'd never seen another Black doctor in my life. And so there's a real truth to you have to see it to believe you can be it. And I had, um, I had straight A's. So it wasn't that I didn't have the ability but I just didn't see anyone around me. I didn't who looked like me who was doing, and I didn't have any role models who I could talk to. And, and why is that important? Because there are many people, and again, probably many of your listeners, who have asked or, or will ask themselves, "How could you work for that administration?" Uh, you know, let's be honest. There are a lot of people who aren't fans of the prior administration or the prior president. I had people in my family who who wanted to disown me for working for the, current, for the prior administration. And whenever someone says, how could you work for that administration? I remember growing up in that rural area, um, not even believing I could be a doctor growing up and then being uh, in the White House, standing next to the leader of the free world, the president of the United States, and all these kids across the nation seeing me standing there at the podium uh, in, in the White House. They don't care that I'm standing next to Donald Trump. They see that someone who looks like me, um, who's in the White House, and they believe that they can be it too. So when someone says, how could you? I say, how couldn't I? How could I say no when given that opportunity to serve my country? And make no mistake about it, I went there to serve my country, not to serve a political party. And uh, that's another challenge that I think we have moving forward. And I know we're jumping around a little bit, but you hit some areas that are of passion to me. I really worry about the future of public service in this country because it's become so politicized. And you have people say, I won't work for Trump or I won't work for Biden. Well, somebody needs to be there to make sure the roads are paved and the hospitals are open and the fires get put out and and the police show up when when you have a problem uh, at, at your house. And so we really need to understand public service is really about serving America. It's not about serving a political party, you
0: know. I I, I couldn't agree uh, more with you. All right, so let me try to keep us focused just a little bit, and I don't mind jumping. I up. know,
1: I know, I'm all over the no, place no, here, no, but no. you hit the, area of the and, and, and and you know, and I love the opportunity to give people a little bit more insight into into it because I take a lot of of how and where I grew up into the positions that I now occupy, and you asked about growing up in Southern Maryland, and and that really did view how I how I approached my time as surgeon general, up to and including whether or not I even took the job in the first place. How could I not? And then when you're in the job, you know, a lot of my focus has been on issues that I saw growing up in rural southern Maryland like substance issues. And we know the opioid epidemic hit those communities hard. We know alcoholism and smoking hit those communities hard. We know obesity hits those communities hard. And I saw all those things in real life affect my family members. And so I prioritized them when I became Surgeon General of the United States.
0: Right, and that's what brought us together was, uh, was a conversation that was very memorable about the opioid crisis. Uh, and we'll, we, will, we will come back to that, but let's stay with you just for another minute or two if we can, and, and I don't mind at all that we're jumping around. So somebody <laughs> gave you a little bit of help and you got a scholarship, uh initially the Meyer off and then you ended up getting a Lilly scholarship which I guess brought you to Indiana um, exactly your parents were they supportive of your uh, objectives there were there other folks who mentored you who were some of the great minds who helped shape you early on well
1: great question my parents are both school teachers um and so they always um were encouraging of me uh but School teachers don't make a lot of money and they didn't make a lot of money when I was a kid. And so I always knew that uh, if I was going to go to school, it was going to be on my own dime because I had um, four siblings and my parents weren't going to pay for me to go. And so true story, um, I was having a conversation with my 12-year-old daughter just recently and she said, dad, if you could have gone to Harvard, would you have? Because we're talking about colleges. I have a 17 and a 16-year-old and I said, honey, I got accepted to Harvard. And she said, you did, why didn't you go? I said, because I couldn't afford to. I went to where um, I was able to get a scholarship. And so uh, thank you to all your advertisers and all, you, all, you, all your partners who are listening to this podcast for the efforts that you've made to help make school possible for people like me um, who otherwise wouldn't have. And, it's, and I stand here as proof of, of what can happen if you give people like me that opportunity, rural kid, skinny little kid with asthma, um, minority who maybe was written off by many other folks, uh, rose to become Surgeon General of the United States because of a scholarship program at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And then because of another scholarship that was offered to me to uh, go to be an Eli Lilly scholar. But um, I've had many mentors throughout the time. What's interesting is uh, you asked, did I ever dream of being a doctor? The first black doctor I met was Dr. Ben Carson when I was in uh, undergrad. And so he was at Johns Hopkins and uh, he came by to speak to us. That was the first time in my life I'd met a black doctor and was able to say, huh, if he can do it, if I can, if I, you know, he, he tells his story about growing up uh, in an in a urban area, poor um, and being written off. If he can do it, then maybe I can do it too. So he's been a mentor to me. Another person who, um, again, is a controversial figure, but personally, for me, really helped me out was Mike Pence. Mike Pence gave me the opportunity to run the State Department of Health in Indiana. And uh, we were able to do some pretty uh, significant things during that tenure. We legalized syringe service programs throughout the state of Indiana. they would previously been illegal to respond to an HIV outbreak. And after that, the number of syringe service programs nationwide more than doubled based on uh, the, uh, the us changing that, that legislation. And I say that to your listeners because I would argue to this day that um, we were able to accomplish more because I was working in a Republican administration and uh, pushing these initiatives than in a Democratic administration. And, and I don't mean to make this political, but, but what I will say to you is I can't tell you how many places I've been to in the South and in, the, and in places like Arizona and in places like Florida where they've literally said, well, if Mike Pence in Indiana could do it, then we need to do it too. And so it's important for us to show that these health initiatives aren't just about one party or the other party. Um, It's important for us to be able to to work for different administrations and to help them see the way forward. So Mike Pence has been someone who's really opened doors for me because he picked me to be his, uh, his health commissioner and then he became vice president and threw my name in the hat for Surgeon General of the United States. And uh, I say that to folks out there too because you don't have to be the same color as someone to, to speak up on their behalf or to give them an opportunity. And whether you love Mike Pence or you hate Mike Pence, I, I gotta be honest, I wouldn't be Surgeon General of the United States and wouldn't be where I was without him. And whether you love Ben Carson or hate Ben Carson, I wouldn't have uh, uh, believed that I could aspire to the, to the, to the heights that I've reached uh, if I had never had someone like a Ben Carson in my life showing me it was possible.
0: So it's a Pandora's box of places we could go, but let's um, let's stick with that notion and that comment that you made that you had never seen a Black doctor until you met Dr. Carson. Um, now, in your current role uh, back in Indiana, you're looking, that word equity really jumped out at me in terms of your expansive remit there. You're the exception to the rule. A young kid who grew up in Southern Maryland didn't have access to a lot of health care, almost passed away, an incredible story, uh, and had to literally be airlifted to a hospital to take care of you as a young boy. Exactly. Um, and politics inevitably creeps into everything. I guess <laughs> it does. <laughs> I am of the opinion, and I grew up in Queens. My family's from Brooklyn. I very proudly went to public schools. Um, my mom would open up our home. We used to literally walk home for lunch and I would always bring someone who didn't have money for lunch home with me. Uh, My mom would always feed them, you know, whatever I was eating, whoever I brought home, my friend Eddie Kelly from Ghana or Fritz Isaac from Haiti, whoever I brought home, all my little friends in second and third grade, you know, my mom would feed them. Do you think that some piece of the problems that we are facing as a nation now and this divisiveness are driven by the fact that America in well within our lifetimes in the next 10, 15 years is gonna be more than 50% non-white. And do we think that a lot of folks, white folks in particular, don't like
1: that? Uh, So I'll be very frank with you. I do think that's an issue. Uh, I really do. Uh, So let let me flip that on its head. One of my favorite quotes, and I'm a big quote person, um, two of my favorite quotes. One of my favorite quotes is people need to know that you care before they care what you know. And unfortunately, we've fallen into these political tribes and we stopped talking to one another. And that's prevented us from being able to show each other Um, that we really care and to have real genuine conversations without suspicion along color lines, along religious lines. You know, when you think about, um, even religion has been split up into, if you believe in God, you're a Republican. If you don't believe in God, you're a Democrat. That's insane to me. That's insane to me. But the other quote that I love is Mark Twain's. He says, travel is fatal to prejudice, narrow-mindedness and bigotry. And I encourage people to travel as much as possible. Um, even within the United States, um, because I was very fortunate in my life. Uh, I've lived in Berkeley, California. I got my master's in public health there. I got to tell you, when I was there, they thought I was a tea partier. And then I moved back to uh, Indiana, to Fisher's, Indiana, where I am right now. Same person, they thought I was a socialist, <laughs> you know, and I was the same person, and we're in the same country, but people behave very differently and view things very differently in different parts of the nation. But I'll tell you, in both of those places, you live there a little bit, you get to know your neighbors, you get to break bread with them, you hang out with them, your kids play with their kids, and you stop seeing them as Democrats or Republicans or liberals or conservatives. And you see them as, hey, that's my neighbor, Matt. He's a good guy. And that's what we need to do more of in this society. There's a great book called Bowling Alone that you may have heard of, uh, but it talks about how um, uh, our neighborhoods to your point are not the way that they used to be. I I lived in DC for uh, almost four years as Surgeon General. The neighbor who lived across the street from me who I never saw once, Never never met them a single time. That's not the way a neighborhood would be a few years ago. And so we need to figure out how we can bring people together and be open to getting to know people without these preconceived notions about who they are or what they are. And I think when that happens, I mean, I I just, I don't want to assume about your family, but I can just all but guarantee that there were people in your family who were probably like, what's your mother doing? Is she crazy bringing these people into, into into her house until they get to know Fritz from Haiti? And then all of a sudden, Fritz is a pretty cool guy. You know, that's how you break down these barriers. And we need to find more opportunities for people to really get to know one another um, uh, outside of these artificial constraints that we've created. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more.
0: And and you also were lucky enough to go and study internationally. And yeah, as I recall, you were in the Netherlands and also in Zimbabwe. What did you learn or take from either of those places? Two very different places. um, But what did you take with you?
1: Well, what's fascinating is you hear a story play out um, on the US news. And uh, again, I mentioned Berkeley and and Indiana. One of my favorite things to do here in the United States is switch back and forth between Fox and CNN. (laughs) And uh, you'll get the exact same story. It will be told in a completely different way on one news station versus another news station. So that's within the United States. But what's interesting is going outside the country in hearing, um, hearing how they view us in the United States and the different things that we do and that we say. So hearing how they respond to George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, hearing how they respond to some of the things uh, that have happened here in the United States and the debates that we're having over vaccinations and, and, and masking. you know, uh, Many of these other countries, if the uh, prime minister or the president says, hey, we need to all pull together and put on masks, they do it. They can't fathom what the big deal is uh, for us here and why it's become a political issue. But it's really great, I think, for us to step outside of our bubble and to see um, uh, how other people view some of the uh, decisions that we make in our culture, number one. Number two, you mentioned Netherlands and Zimbabwe. You couldn't pick two places that are more different in terms of their resources, and their approach to different issues. Uh, And so in the Netherlands, that's where I got to experience, they have incredibly high taxes there, higher than the United States. But that said, they provide a tremendous wealth of support for everyone in their society. And you're not excluded um, if you have a higher income bracket from these resources. So I I mentioned that because it very specifically is something that I remembered. Uh, about their tax system versus our tax system. And you can oversimplify it and say they charge way too much for taxes. But the fact is everyone sees the benefit of of the government providing these resources for people. And then that feeds into an environment that promotes better health for everyone. And so they had a very different attitude about health and wellness. I remember in in the Netherlands, um, I'd get frustrated because they'd shut down At much earlier times than here in the United States, their shops would shut down, but they would shut down because it was important for the people who ran the businesses to go home and be with their families for dinner. Um, Here in the United States, if there's money to be made, they're staying open and they're continuing to make that money until 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. So they had a very different attitude about family and mental health and wellness. In Zimbabwe, interestingly enough, we were doing a, a project on blood pressure control. And we would study people who were in the bush in the rural areas, and people who were in the who who were in the urban areas, and we were testing the theory uh, of genetics versus environment. And what we saw is there were genetic predispositions to high blood pressure in certain families, but that when people moved from a urban area to uh, from a rural area to an urban area where they had more fast food, and and I remember going to Zimbabwe and being shocked that they had KFC and Taco Bell there and Burger King. when they moved to these urban areas, their blood pressure went up. So there really is a component to the environment that is contributing to your blood pressure beyond genetics. And it's why we can't just say to people, it's your fault um, because because of your genes, or it's your fault because of the decisions that you make, that you have poor health outcomes. Sometimes literally taking someone out of environment A and putting them in environment B can drastically improve or harm their health. And I saw that firsthand. Amazing.
0: Amazing. So let's go to what first brought us together, which is the ongoing opioid crisis. And I remember a startling statistic uh, about a comparison between the number of people, often young people who pass every day in this country is equal to the number of people that died when those 737 max jets went down. And I remember those, I think it was two planes that crashed tragically. And there was an immediate outcry, get those planes out of the sky. And they did. Here we've got about the same number of people on passing on a daily basis from a manufactured crisis driven largely by pharmaceutical industry uh, to with, with incredibly tragic results. And we think of the high profile people. I remember the first time I introduced you on stage, that was the year that we had lost, I think it was Prince and Tom Petty. both yes. Uh, both related to prescription meds. Um, but for every Tom Petty or Prince, there are a thousand young people whose names we don't know. Talk about the severity of the crisis, why it's so much worse in America than everywhere else? And how do we start to find our way forward and beat this problem? I know there's been all kinds of lawsuits and the Sackler family and on and on and on, Um, but talk about it because you really were at the controls leading uh, as a passionate advocate to raise awareness and try to move the needle on this tragic ongoing problem that America in particular is fighting.
1: Well, well, a great um, series to watch uh, if folks get a chance is Dope Sick. Um, it is just an amazing overview uh, of, um, of how we got from where, from where we were to, to where we are. Uh, another book is Sam Quinones' book, Dreamland, that really does a good job of talking about it. But uh, I, to, to try to simplify it, I think about supply and demand. And at the end of the day, we had a U.S. health care system that, um, uh, you, you know, in, in a polite way, you would say it fell asleep at the wheel uh, with overprescribing that was going on. Um, if you want to be on the other side of the coin, and many people rightly are, um, there, were pe- there were folks in the healthcare system who were quite frankly profiting off of, off of legalized, um, uh, le- legalized drug dealing. And so uh, supply got out of control But the the other side of this coin that I think is just as important is demand. And uh, on the demand side, uh, we still have not dealt with the fact that we don't pay enough attention to people's mental health and wellness as important to their well-being. And so a lot of the people who are misusing these substances are misusing them to treat anxiety and depression. That's how they first get started or they may be incidentally exposed to them, but they have a, pre, uh, a pre-existing depression and they go, well, gosh, someone gave me this at a party, but it actually made me feel pretty good. And it's the best I've felt in years. Well, it's the best they felt in years because they have crippling depression that no one ever you know, recognized or treated or that they were f- afraid to talk to anyone about. And they start um, self-medicating with these opioids or these amphetamines and then very quickly, and here's the insidious part about it, it goes from making you feel good to you feel bad if you don't have them. It flips very quickly on you. Um, and so then you're using not because it makes you feel better, you're using so that you don't feel like you know what. And, and that's how that dependence and that addiction continues to build. And so we need to um, work on the supply side, both the illegal drug dealers and the overprescribing that happened out there. But we also need to really focus on the demand side. And we're not going to solve this problem until we have a reckoning with our failure to pay attention to mental health and wellness. Because here's the thing. If you don't pay attention to that, then folks are going to continue to self-medicate with one substance or another, alcohol, tobacco, um, THC, um, opioids, amphetamines. They're going to find a way to keep self-medicating. And uh, you can't just cut off the supply of one thing, you're just gonna keep playing whack-a-mole. And so um, that's in a very broad sense. Now, there are many different policy interventions that we can undertake, but those are all just band-aids until we all recognize that, as I said, if you break your ankle or you have a heart attack um, or, you, um, or you have an upset stomach, or you've got, a, you've got a cold, you have no problem going into the doctor and saying, I need help and telling all your friends, yeah, I, feel like, I feel, feel like crap, I got a cold. But um, it, we, we need to, to make it just as normal to say, I'm feeling a little down today, or I'm feeling a little anxious, and, uh, and to get the help you need in that respect.
0: So when you see uh, Antonio Brown blow up on the field, is your first take, there's something some gears that
1: are a little out of whack upstairs here? Well, that's a fascinating case because I've actually talked about it a lot recently. And again, uh, I'm working with the NFL Hall of Fame to try to destigmatize um, uh, mental health. And so I, I don't want to say that Antonio Brown had a breakdown because they're still debating whether or not um, he had been mistreated by his team. What I will say is that the way he dealt with that conflict is not a healthy way to deal with your conflict. When you're at work, if, if you're in a reasonable state and you've got good tools to deal with crises, you don't strip your shirt off at work, throw, throw, your, throw your clothes out into, into the street, and then run out of the office. I mean, so we can agree on that that regardless of what precipitated it, he did not deal with it in a healthy way. And so what I take from that is that again, we need to do a much better job of helping people understand when they don't, when they have unhealthy ways of dealing with stress, when they have unhealthy ways of dealing with their anxiety and then help, then giving them the tools. And sometimes those tools are medicines. Sometimes those tools are counseling. Sometimes those tools are just things like meditation, Take a deep breath, count to ten, you know. So again, regardless of how you view the Antonio Brown situation, he needed to count to twenty, <laughs> you know, and take a deep breath, uh, and then think, okay, is this a a healthy way for me, personally and professionally, to deal with this conflict that I'm facing? That's what I think about when I see what happened there. And beyond that, you know, perhaps there are um, some some deeper underlying mental health issues. That contributed to that. And if that's the case, I do hope that he gets the help that he needs and that we don't just say, oh, he's a bad person, um, because that's what happens far too often with people is we label them a bad person, a bad guy, a criminal sometimes because of the things that they do. And the reason they're doing it is because they really have a medical problem.
0: And so now your work focused, uh, and this is not certainly the first focus for you on health equity, but talk about the deck being stacked, maybe not even a little, maybe a lot against folks who are not privileged, who are in rural areas, who are poor, who are black, Hispanic, uh, who don't have the same access um, to healthcare uh, and to mental health care uh, being part of that equation. How much more difficult is it if you're not you know, white growing up in a wealthy suburban area or a, mi- or a middle income white area for that matter?
1: Well, it's fascinating because um, I want to take that in a different direction. I want people to understand that, uh, that health inequities aren't us and them. Health inequities can occur to anyone in any way. So when you look at the opioid epidemic, what's been interesting about that is how hard that's hit. Um, the white community and affluent suburban whites and so we need to ask ourselves um, and be, be, be willing to explore the many different ways someone might have inequitable access to the resources they need to be healthy so it could be by race and that's an obvious one it could be language barriers that's another obvious one it could be by gender uh, and whether or not um, you're in a gender category that is, that is not as respected and doesn't have equal access to the resources you need to be healthy. It could be because you live in a rural area. It could be because you live in an urban area. People who live in urban areas are more prone to, uh, to suffer um, uh, violence, uh, you know? And, and, and so uh, again, it, the, the, these, these different categories um, all, are part of health inequities. And health equity is really about making sure each person has the resources they need to be their healthiest self. It could be ageism. And this is something that, that you, know, uh, you and I are increasingly dealing with as we get older. You know, you, you go from you're too young to be to, 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 to access these resources to all of a sudden you're too old to be allowed to do these things anymore. So ageism can be um, can be a part of it. Um, people with disabilities are oftentimes written off and not given the opportunities. And this is another example in a in both urban and rural environments, they aren't always meant to be convenient to people. I mean, I've been in New York and you try to get on the subway in a wheelchair if you have um if if you've got a, a cane or, 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 or what have you and the elevator's down, then what do you do? <laughs> you know, um we, so that, that's another example of people not having the resources they need to be healthy. So at Purdue University, what I'm trying to do is help us figure out how we can do a better job of outreach to people, whatever their inequity is, and to give them the resources they need to be healthy. So if you're obese, I'm not going to blame you for being obese. I'm gonna look at your environment and I'm gonna say, okay, do you have the education that you need? Do you have the access to affordable fresh fruits and vegetables do you need? Do you have the opportunity to go outside? Do you have the childcare that you need so you can actually go to the gym because you're a single mom and uh, you can't leave the kids at home by yourself? Do you have everything you need to be healthy? Because we know that when we do that, when we provide people the resources they need to be healthy, then more often than not, people wanna be healthy. They're gonna make that healthy choice. But the more obstacles that exist for them, the harder it is for them to make the healthy choice and the easier it is for them to say, nah, I'm not going to go to the gym Hey, I'm just going to swing into McDonald's and get a 99 cent cheeseburger instead of trying to uh, trying to find and pay for and make this $12 salad <laughs> You know that, that isn't going to fill me up anymore than this, this cheeseburger. Uh, nah, I'm not going to go um, an hour out to try to find a gym because there's no safe place for me to exercise uh, around near me. Um, Making the healthy choice, the easy choice is really what health equity is all about. And Purdue has some unique resources to be able to do that. We're one of the oldest agricultural schools in the country. So who better to talk about food as medicine? Uh, uh, We're the home of Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. Uh, Purdue is known for ag and engineering. So who better to talk about utilizing technology? And we talked about the downsides of technology, but how do we leverage the upsides of smartphones and technology in the digital space to improve access uh, to care to, uh, to people?
0: Fantastic. And, and, and I did hear you, and, and I think you really struck a chord that resonated with me about the importance of public service and concerns about the future of public service, because the work that you're doing, whether it's in the public sector or academia, so important. To us as a nation.
1: Indeed, indeed. Um, And and again, one of the things that I also like about many other countries outside the U.S. is that many of them have a requirement for public service or or a or more incentive for public service. When I talked about we talked earlier about this lack of community that's really harming us. Well, uh, in these other countries, uh, you Part of the reason you, you know about and love your country is because they, they, they reward you and or um, have policies that strongly encourage you to, uh, to serve your nation. It's easy to say, I hate this country or I hate people in this country, if you don't really understand it and you don't feel a camaraderie with it. Uh, we, we face a real challenge, really quick story that I, that I tell um, that, that really drives it home to people. I was um, asked, I was in Switzerland And I was asked to describe the U.S. healthcare system on a panel and they gave me five minutes. Easy peasy, right? So uh, I I said to them, I said, when you look at uh, Berlin, Germany and Paris, France, these are two cities in two different countries. They're in two different countries. They speak um, different languages. And during the last Great World War, they literally tried to obliterate each other off the map. If either one had had their way, the other one would not exist on this planet right now. That's how different these two cities are or have been historically. When you look at top health issues like women's health, like gun rights, like uh, drug policy, like, um, like whether or not we should be providing um, uh, insurance and free health care to people, those two cities are more aligned than Dallas, Texas and Boston, Massachusetts. And so when you think about a country, we have to understand we are a very big country um, we are a very diverse country, and uh, we need to focus on trying to find commonalities um, uh, because there's it, it's it's far too easy in this country to uh, to point out distinctions between ourselves. We need to find those commonalities, and one of those commonalities, I think, can and should be public service. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you. if I had my way, if I had my way, I would massively beef up the funding. And the, and the encouragement and the pathways for young people to, to, to pursue public service uh, through grants, uh, grant forgiveness, through loan forgiveness. I mean, uh, one of the things that, that you hear people talking about is paying off people's college debts. I'm all for that. I'm all for free college. Um, hey, let, let's attach it to a requirement that you have to um, give back in some way. And it doesn't mean you've got to go to the military. Um, there's plenty of ways you can serve the public within your community, but let's make it a, a quid pro quo. Let's say, hey, you serve your country, your country gives back to you, we all win in the end.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 I could not agree with you more. And I don't think it would fly in this country. But you know, you look at the success that Israel has in the tech space in particular, and it's all these kids that they require, they go into the military. You know, these kids are smart and they get out of their mandatory service and they are making big contributions they are way you know over indexing in terms of throw weight you know israel as a country as you know is tiny there's more people in in, in brooklyn you know than there are exactly. in, in, uh, and uh and look what look what they're doing and i wonder how much of that is connected to that in this case military but a fo- certainly a form of public service
1: well, and it's funny you mentioned Israel, and I, I know that we're jumping around. I hope we're not frustrating your listeners, but when it comes back to COVID, we frequently talk about, look what Israel did you know, with, their, with their boosters, with this, that, and the other. But you brought up a key point, which drives home what I was saying earlier. Israel is smaller than Brooklyn. And so when we say Israel did it, why can't we do it? Um, we have to understand that we're trying to take something that, that you could implement um, in, in New York- and expand it across the entire United States, and that's one of the challenges that we have in this country. We're trying to come up with national policy. Is you're not trying to come up with national policy for Israel, you're trying to come up with national policy for for uh, 75 or 100 Israels, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. and trying yeah. to get them all to come together all at once. Fair point. So let's let's talk
0: a little bit about uh, the uh, the pandemic. And uh, I've been a voracious reader of books (laughs) about the past administration on all sides. And um, one of the books that I'm reading now uh, by a couple of the uh, journalists out of the Washington Post talks about uh, Bob Redfield, the former head of the CDC and a fear long before COVID hit that uh, one of the great risks for the world was going to be a respiratory virus, one that we could not see. And not that anybody could have seen the severity of what was coming, but it seems like very smart people knew that something like this could happen and that we were not prepared at all when it did. Uh, What's your take? And um, do you remember the very first time this came across your desk, an email, a phone call and how you reacted?
1: Well, uh, so uh, what's interesting is that reflects back on a conversation that we had earlier on a few minutes ago about the fact that the US likes to focus on treatment and cures and not on prevention. And the problem is that we've always been a country who hesitates um, at at putting in the money it takes to prevent a problem. And then we always overreact and overswing the pendulum it seems um, and spend money very inefficiently to mop up the mess. We don't like to change the oil in the car when it hits 3000 miles Uh, We like to wait until the engine blows up and then point fingers and say, it's your fault the engine blew up. No, it's your fault the engine blew up. Well, we gotta buy a new engine for everybody. And so the truth is that uh, we had Ebola um, a few years before and everybody lost their minds. And what's interesting about Ebola is we could have taken the positive lessons from that. And in some cases, uh, many states did and that actually helped our response more than what people realized. But it also was another example of people feeling like we cried wolf. We'd lost our ever-loving minds over Ebola. We were banning people um, from countries you know, that, that weren't even part of the uh, at-risk group. Um, billions of dollars spent to, to um, stand up these Ebola units all across the country. We, we, we had nine total cases of Ebola. And so you know that was, that was the latest example before that. It was, um, it was MERS. And Indiana actually famously had uh, the first case of MERS in the United States. And we thought that was going to be the big one. We, I mean, people forget that we thought that was going to be the, uh, the, 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 uh, the COVID epidemic, was MERS. And that ended up fizzling out. And so you have a country that doesn't like to spend on prevention because there's no money in prevention. The money is in treatment. 20% of our GDP is in is in treatment in this country. And everyone who says that there's waste in the healthcare system, um, I push back and I say there's zero waste in the healthcare system. And people raise their eyebrows when I say that. I say that because that money's not going into thin air. It's going into somebody's pocket. It's going into some, some, somebody's kid's college fund. It's going into somebody's 401k. That money isn't being burnt. Um, and so our GDP relies on us having this approach um, towards um, downstream treatment and not upstream prevention. So you have that as a baseline. And then you superimpose on top of that many of these, and I, I hate to call them false alarms, but to the public at large and to Congress and to the, the funding authorities, these seem like false alarm after false alarm after false alarm. You told us Ebola was gonna be bad. We all lost our minds. It wasn't bad at all in the United States. You told us merge was gonna be the big one and um, they were able to stop it at one case. And so, And then you had an election superimposed on top of it. And that really made things very difficult for all of us. uh, Because, And and for your listeners, I'm an independent. Again, I I served America. I didn't serve a a particular political party, even though I'm grateful for for the opportunities that were given to me. Um, But but we need to understand that that when it comes to to this pandemic, uh, you had one party that said, vote for us or you're all going to die. And then you had another party that said, nothing to see here, folks, everything's fine. (laughs) And the truth was, the answer was very much somewhere in between. And so you had all these things coming together. and, And the point that I wanna make here is that I hope that coming out of this, we don't go back to the old normal because the old normal was treatment over prevention waiting for the car to to, to have a flat tire or or a blown up engine and then dealing with it. And um, I mean, it was ignoring the threats that are pervasive. One of the the threats that I'm still concerned about is antimicrobial resistance, um, which uh, the World Health Organization calls a top 10 health threat. We aren't paying nearly enough attention to that and that's gotten worse during the time of COVID. Why? Because now everyone, you know it's always been this way, but it's even worse. Everyone gets a sniffle um, or a runny nose and they, they want a Z-pack. Um, but, but that is a, a real pervasive threat that we have right now on par with the pandemic threat that we still aren't paying attention to. So uh, it, again, unfortunately our system is set up to, to cause us to behave in exactly the ways that we behave as W. Edward Demings has famously said in the past. Every system is perfectly designed to get exactly re- the results that it gets. Our political and our economic systems in this country are set up for us to get exactly what we got and I hope we have some serious reflection on this and change things for the better. And I hope what drives it to end with a positive note on this is the business community. So uh, I, I was talking with, uh, uh, with Stuart Varney recently, and I, I said to him, the United CEO um, has recently said that they were losing an employee a week due to COVID, like an employee dying when I say losing, a week before their vaccine mandate they put in their vaccine mandate and they haven't lost a, a vaccinated employee since then. And so from a business perspective, there's an imperative to promoting health, regardless of how you feel about government mandates and, and X, Y, and Z. Um, we, If we don't have a healthy workforce, we're not gonna have a healthy bottom line. And I hope that uh, communities and businesses start to embrace that after, after COVID uh, and not rely on or expect that we're going to be able to solve these problems from 1600 Pennsylvania.
0: Okay. So you gave me some great stuff and some great answers, but not necessarily to the question that I asked. So I want to go back to it. Uh, this, uh-huh. is, this is not 60 minutes, but uh, <laughs> I, would, I would like to go back to the beginning of it. When it yes. first came up, Did was there a a genuine, you know, this is another false alarm or this is not going to be so severe. And you I'm not trying to play Monday morning quarterback.
1: No, no, no. I'm glad you
0: followed up on that. I think you. Yes, exactly. What was happening in the White House? What was happening in those rooms? And um, do we suffer here more because the global institutions like the W.H.O that they don't have the teeth that they once did, that we are so, not, so You're, you're stealing that, my that, that leadership, here. That you for leadership, that.
1: leadership is, is not really there. Yeah, no, I, I, I was totally, that, I, I was setting you up for that. And, I, and I'm so glad that you came back because that, that's the challenge that we had. So in the beginning, number one, we heard about, oh my gosh, here's this respiratory virus in China. Guess what? We hear that every year. True story. Every year in January or February or December, there's some new respiratory virus somewhere in the country that we're worried about. And and we throw out our feelers and we're like, is this is this a big deal or is this not? It happens every single year. So I don't want to say it wasn't taken seriously. But I do want people to understand that, um, that when you first hear about it, you don't automatically go, oh, my gosh, we need to tell everybody that they need to shut down. That's number one. Um, number two, one of the big problems uh, that, that people don't talk enough about was the lack of transparency from China. So Dr. Redfield tried to send a CDC team into China. China very much withheld information from us. And so I, as Surgeon General of the United States, was literally finding out about this virus on TV in the beginning, finding out about it um, through, through, uh, through the Internet and reports that we're getting from from other people, not through the channels that you would normally expect through the WHO and the CDC because of the lack of transparency. So one of the major lessons here is that we need much better global cooperation and we do need the WHO to have more teeth in this circumstance to be able to uh, send people in and get that information. Because if we'd had the information about asymptomatic spread sooner, we could have reacted sooner and saved many more lives. Uh, When we told people not to wear masks in the beginning of the pandemic, Tony Fauci and I, that was because we really believed based on what we knew at the time that we weren't gonna have a high degree of asymptomatic spread and that it wasn't a good recommendation to tell people to wear masks. Because prior to that, every other respiratory virus we had, if you're sick, Matt, you look sick, you feel sick, you're coughing, you're sneezing. And our recommendation isn't wear a mask, it's if you're sick, stay home. That worked for every respiratory virus up to that point. Uh, we didn't have the information and people noticed that we changed our recommendations pretty quickly, within less than a month, because then the information started to come in. I mean they couldn't hide it in China anymore and then all of a sudden we said, oh actually we do need to recommend that people wear masks, but a lot of that, and that wasn't so much um, an issue on the U.S. side as it was we couldn't get the information that we needed to make those decisions in a timely manner, and so you asked a specific question, uh, you know I heard about it on the news and on TV. Um, it's crazy I was surgeon general of the United States and that's how I was getting my information until about February when I until later in February, when I was uh, actually officially added to the, uh, the task force um, for uh, for the White House. Uh, when, when uh, Pence took over that, that task force. And then we started bringing people together regularly in the White House for, for daily updates. And even then, uh, politicians weren't taking it seriously. And, and this is not me throwing shade on anyone, but I will remind people during that time, Pelosi was walking through the streets of Chinatown and saying, Chinatown is not gonna shut down. Cuomo famously said it would be civil war. He said this, if we if the federal government tried to stop people from coming back and forth to New York. So you still had that dynamic of economy versus, uh, and certainly there were plenty of, of red states who, who felt the same way, but this wasn't a red versus blue. This is politicians saying that the economy is what's most important to us in the United States. And you better give us the damn good reason if you're gonna shut down the economy and us not getting that damn good reason to shut down the economy from China until after Uh, really the virus had spread so much that there wasn't a whole lot we could do except ride out the wave. So that that was the real progression of this in real time from someone who was in the room and who unfortunately even being in the room was still getting information second and third hand because we didn't have the transparency we needed on a global basis. And that's not likely to change with China. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, and it's also interesting and we could have a whole nother talk about this, and it's it's a rabbit hole that I don't want to go too far down. But people talk about President Trump pulling out of the WHO, you know, and, and his adversarial relationship with the with the WHO. But what I will say is, many of us were very frustrated with the WHO and their lack of willingness to to really push China to give us the information that they needed. Now that said, is the answer no WHO? or no US involvement in it, I don't believe that's the answer either. Again, you've got hyperbole on both sides here. Um, What we need is a stronger and better functioning WHO to protect us as a country moving forward.
0: Absolutely. So we did, and it's very much framed in the context of what you talked about, about how America treats people after they're sick. We did what we are great at, and we threw a lot of money at the problem and to the credit of uh, good old fashioned uh, ingenuity developed these incredible vaccines in a very, very short period of time. Uh, And I think the administration has to be credited with that. No caveats, no ifs, ands or buts. We then have a situation where taking the vaccine becomes (laughs) politicized. Um, and I was with some uh, colleagues I was in Florida recently and uh, in Palm Beach and that's, you know, that's Trump territory. And uh, a friend of mine said, you know, had he not raised the questions about the vaccine and created this reticence, he probably would have won it again. Um, How did we go from developing vaccines in record time, which clearly are helping us all, right? We're vaxxed, we're okay. boosted you know, my daughter just had COVID, she got over it quick, you know, you know all this data far better than I do. At what point was there a pivot moment? Was there a, a, a brief when all of a sudden this thing went haywire and that notion of the vaccines and science becoming politicized? happened here, this is unique to America, this is not happening yep. in the rest of the world.
1: Well, so, so it's interesting because um, I would take issue with, with what your friend said based on the timeline. Um, uh, there's consistency and then there's intensity. Um, I have never heard President Trump, and this is not me defending him, I'm just saying, honestly, I've never heard him um, say he wouldn't trust a vaccine. I have heard Kamala Harris, and, 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 uh, and Governor Cuomo both say that they would not trust a vaccine that came out under the Trump administration. So um, President Trump has not been as intense of a supporter of vaccines at times as perhaps he could have been or people would have liked. But there are other politicians who have literally said they would not trust a vaccine. And to me, that's, it's important for us to talk about it, and it's incredibly harmful because you can't unring that bell. You can't say, don't trust the FDA today. Oh, we won. Now you need to trust the FDA. Uh, it, that, that, that's a real problem that we have in this country. And to your point, um, it, there, there wasn't a magic moment, but it, it got ratcheted up the second these things started to become election issues. The second it, it, it became you can't trust the FDA as long as Trump is in charge. Um, And and, and that's one side, Uh, and and like I said, the other side of the coin um, really was, uh, I think, a reticence to call out um, some of the the elements out there who have been consistently, and with increasing intensity being anti-vax, who uh, frequently fall within Republican circles. I say frequently because the most famous anti-vaxxer out there, um, Robert Kennedy, is a proud Democrat. So once again, I point out to people that, um, that hey, you've got to be uh, careful about saying that this is all one side or the other. There's fault on both sides. But I do want to take people back because uh, I want people to remember that we almost lost our measles eradication status in 2019, before COVID. The, the last trip I canceled Um, prior to the pandemic with a trip to American Samoa because they were having a terrible measles outbreak there. So vaccine hesitancy is not new. It is not new. And if you actually look at the trajectory of COVID vaccinations, it is exactly what any epidemiologist would have predicted. You see a rapid uptick until you hit about 55, 60% and then you see a leveling off And then once you hit 70% or so, that's really when things start to, and that's the way it is for flu. That's the way it is for for every other vaccine out there. But even that's been politicized. I think we need to be honest with people that we always knew we were gonna be in a hard space right now. And that we went from, hey, open up Yankee Stadium and there's a line of people to get your vaccine in the beginning, to now this is gonna be one-on-one intense conversations with folks who are hesitant. Um, so yes, there are people out there who are poisoning the well continually, we need to call them out. And, uh, and no matter which party they're in, we need to call them out. But, uh, but we also need to understand that the ingredients were there, the baseline was there. And it's not like we suddenly went from a country that expected to get 90% compliance with vaccines beforehand to, uh, oh my gosh, uh, something that Trump or Republicans did um, has caused this precipitous fall off. No, it's, it's actually pretty much exactly what we would have expected. Um, you know, accentuated somewhat by some bad elements out there and politicization on all sides. And as an independent, I say that politicians on both sides need to pull the, the, the you know, one of the things that's really frustrating, and you see many articles about this right now, um, recent articles about the Biden administration portraying this as a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And um, I think that is, that's harmful because I still meet many people out there who are unvaccinated because they have legitimate fears. So if I talk to a 27-year-old nurse who was unvaccinated because she's been trying to get pregnant for five years and she's got been fed misinformation out there about the vaccines um, affecting her infertility, that doesn't mean she's a bad person, whether she b- voted for Trump or Biden. That means she's someone who has legitimate concerns who we need to Make sure we're doing proper outreach to, not saying it's your fault this pandemic is still going on. You've had plenty of time to to get your questions answered. Um, People still don't acknowledge that a, a large proportion of the unvaccinated are African Americans and Hispanics. Tuskegee took 42 years to end and another 30 years for the United States to apologize for it. So why do we expect that one year of us telling you that a vaccine is safe and effective Is going to undo 70 years of of mistrust uh, that people have related to to, to the government telling you everything's going to be fine. Just trust us and do what we say. And so there's, uh, again, this whole idea of calling it a pandemic of the unvaccinated is political. And it's politicizing it and it's pushing people apart instead of pulling them together. I've found success when I actually listen to people. And remember the quote I told you, uh, people need to know you care before they care what you know we listen to people and show them that we care, Uh, I've convinced a lot of people, Republicans, Democrats, Black, White, Hispanic, and otherwise, to get vaccinated.
0: And what were the most effective things that you were able to convey to people? Let's say you're sitting with Kyrie Irving this afternoon, and your task is to persuade him to get vaccinated. What did you find was most effective? And how how do you move the needle against somebody, whether their information is real fiction or somewhere in between, whatever is formulating their opinion, how do you persuade people?
1: Well, that's a great question. And so um, if I went in to talk to Kyrie Irving, the first thing I would do is orient my mind around the fact that I'm unlikely to convince him in one conversation. I'm not here to say something magical to Kyrie Irving that's gonna make him get vaccinated. And if that happens, great, but that's not my goal today. My goal in talking to you, Kyrie Irving, is to number one, build your trust, help you understand that I'm not here to call you a bad person for not being vaccinated. I'm not here to say you're a Trumper. I'm not here to say you're an idiot. I'm not here to say whatever bad about you. I'm here to say, Kyrie Irving, I'm a doctor. I want what's best for you. Um, And then I'd say, what are your concerns about the vaccine? So I can give him a chance to express his concerns and I can hear him out. And I, I need to not be defensive uh, because you know we, we, this is a human thing. Um, we, we have conversations, but we're not really listening. We're just preparing to fire back. I need to really listen. And if there's something that's just blatantly wrong, then, then I say, well, actually I, I, I'm a doctor and I can tell you that that's blatantly wrong. But the problem is a lot of this misinformation plays on nuance. And so, you know, there's a nugget of truth in there that then people spin. And so then I need to say, OK, well, I understand where you're coming from. You've got to validate people's concerns, just like you got to validate that pregnant woman who says, I want to be able to preserve my fertility. That's a reasonable concern that you have. Do you mind if I share with you some information um, on this from a source that I use as a physician um, to, that, that, that I trust? And then finally, I close with personal examples. I tell people, look, I got vaccinated. My wife got vaccinated. My kids are vaccinated and boosted. Let me tell you why we did it, if you don't mind. So listening um, with compassion, validating people's feelings, um, sharing yourself as an example, and then asking them if you can share information moving forward. So I have a very close family member. I won't, I won't reveal that person's name, but very close family member. It took me six months to convince that family member to get vaccinated, six months. And so, like I said, you don't go in thinking, I'm going to magically flip the switch. You go in building that trust, listening and saying, hey, if you have any questions, feel free. And I have people right now, before you and I just got on this this podcast, I got a text from a good buddy of mine who's concerned about getting his booster. And, and, And he's sharing with me information he got from Joe Rogan's podcast. And I'm not saying... Oh my gosh, that's insane! Or you know, or or what have you? And okay, well, let me share with you why I got my booster, and let me share with you some information about this thing that was brought up on this podcast that, that, that I believe shows that that's not an accurate way to read the information that's out there.
0: So, listening, a little bit of empathy, and not that visceral, immediate. Oh, that guy or that gal's a nut. That exactly does not work.
1: It absolutely does not work, and that's the problem with, again, I think um, the the current administration's approach of calling it a pandemic of the unvaccinated is because it's a blaming blaming framing right from the start. Um, You you need to show people that you care before they care what you know, and if they don't think that you care about them, they're never going to care about what you're telling them to do. And going
0: forward, uh, um, uh, not a doctor, not a scientist, but one of the things that you read um, is that over time, the variants will get weaker and that there are more variants coming down the line behind Omicron, um, but that it should not be as bad. Is that true, doctor?
1: So every time we try to make a prediction about COVID, COVID slaps us in the face first of all. So that's important to understand. Um, There are things that we've seen in history, and in history, um, the variants do tend at a point to get weaker and weaker and weaker. That's in general, but that is not a universal rule by any means. The The next variant could be stronger. The one thing I can tell people for certain is that Omicron is not the last variant. We will have new variants in the future, and so we need to accept that one. One thing that both administrations did wrong was they both politically wanted to say, "Yeah, we beat the pandemic." We, you know, they wanted to declare victory over the pandemic. For uh, for, for Trump, it was him famously saying, um, "You know, we're going to have Easter like normal, and we're going to have it ended." Um, for Biden, it was, "You know, we're done Fourth of July." You know, we're we're, we're done with this pandemic. They both did it. Um, We need to tell the American public the truth, and that's that we're going to be living with this virus for several years moving forward, um, just because it's going to take that long for us to get a level of immunity in the population that allows us to really drive this down. But that said, we have the tools to be able to successfully um, live with this virus um, and make reasonable trade-offs, unlike in 2020. In 2020, we had the shutdown. People were dying. Hospitals were, were being overrun, and we didn't have any way to to really protect people. Um, Now we have vaccines, we have boosters which significantly lower your chance of being harmed if you go out. We have masks, we have tests if you can get them, uh, we have treatments available. And so people can make a much more educated and reasonable risk assessment to say, you know what, I'm gonna go to that wedding. And I know I'm putting myself at risk if I go to that wedding, but I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted, I'm going to wear an N95 mask, I'm going to test on the way in and on the way out, and if I get the virus and I can get an oral antiviral to treat myself so I don't end up in the hospital. So we're in a drastically different place right now moving forward, and I, I think that that there, there is um, hope moving forward, but, but these tools are useless if we don't use them. If we can't get past the politics and actually agree to utilize these tools. And so that's what's going to be the key to success moving forward. It's not relying on the virus getting weaker and weaker. It's relying on us um, coming together and using the strengths that we've acquired to actually be able to uh, to successfully live with the virus.
0: I'm not going to ask you if you're optimistic or pessimistic because you have such a positive energy. I know you will not (laughs) allow yourself to answer that you're... (laughs) You have such a positive energy and you've been through hell the last couple of years. Being Surgeon General in the midst of, you know, uh, uh, one of three pandemics that we know about that the planet has ever seen going back over hundreds of years. um, How do you keep yourself positive and up and how do you look after yourself, doctor, so that you stay up and positive and in a good state of mind upstairs between the
1: years? Great question. One of the reasons that I can stay optimistic is because I I know a little bit of our of our country's history, and I have faith in the American people. We've lived through a Revolutionary War, <laughs> where we literally overthrew, um, you know, essentially our parent country. We've lived through a Civil War, where we literally were fighting with our brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, we've lived through two world wars, um, and the people who survived the World War, uh, Second World War, are known as our greatest generation because of the resilience that, that that they showed and that was instilled in them by living through an incredibly tough time. So if our country can get through those, I'm confident that we can get through COVID. I, I really am. So so historically, that that's number one. Number two, what's interesting and it's, it's really tough to say this when you're in the fog of battle, but if you're completely objective as a scientist, this is a really amazing and cool and exciting time to be a scientist. You have three, three vaccines. You know, in 2020, most of 2020 scientists were saying it'd be a miracle if we had a single vaccine um, by, by, by the end of 2021. We had three vaccines. That were far more effective than we ever thought any of them would be um, delivered. So we've changed drug delivery for forever uh, and drug discovery. Uh, You've got telehealth, rapid expansions. You've got um, an attention to public health like we've never had before. You've got information being shared in real time. Uh, I literally, I know that when we get done, I'll pull up Twitter and there'll be two or three more articles about COVID that have been published online in real time. Uh, it's an exciting time, and that gives me optimism too, because um, I'm hopeful that we can, we can really um, use this as a, a nidus for positive change. The greatest advances we've had in our nation have been come after times of war, particularly in health policy. Um, we had rapid use of antibiotics after World War I, transfusion therapy after World War II, trauma therapy improved after, uh, the Gulf War, and like I said, rapid expansions in telehealth. So it's a really exciting time. What do I do to keep myself sane? Well, uh, family. Family really matters to me. I spend as much time as I can with my, uh, with my kids. Uh, you know. And, uh, and from a mental health perspective, that's one of the things that really bothers me about this pandemic and continues to worry me if we don't do the things we need to do to reopen we need that human interaction. We need to be able to rely on one another. And there are a lot of people out there that don't have the luxury of living with um, you know, th- th- their family. And so if they're scared or unable to travel to see their family or to uh, bring them into their household, that, 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 that means that they don't have something that I have. Going back to our health equity conversation, I have opportunities to, uh, to, to, to have mental health um, breaks with my family and with my friends that other people don't have. And so uh, I really hope we can come together, we can use the tools um, that, that, that have been delivered to us miraculously. I mean, it's, it is truly uh, a miraculous time to be alive from a scientific perspective. And we can get the politics out of this and stop framing it as Democrats versus Republicans, and that doesn't mean that we don't call out bad actors. I want people to hear me when I say this. We can call out bad actors without calling out people's political tribes because the, the latter makes it absolutely worse. And if we do that, then we can hopefully look back on this 10 years down the road and say it was a horrific time. We lost far too many lives, but it was also a time when we changed many of our systems and structures and culture for the better.
0: I, I sure hope you're right. And uh, this has been such a joy to get to talk to you. We covered a lot of tough subjects. Um, and uh, uh, I think you're all that's right in public service. I think we are lucky to have you uh, uh, in where you are now doing the work you're doing at Purdue uh, around health equity and so many other issues. And I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time today, uh, Doc. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I hope to see you again in person soon.
1: Hey, thank you, great conversation. And I know it's gonna happen. My daughter loves Broadway shows. So she's been begging me to take her back to New York so she can see another one. That was one of the funnest things that we actually did um, for family time when we were in DC. Because in Indiana, I can't hop in the car on a Friday afternoon and be in New York um, on Broadway by Friday night. So I'm
0: looking forward to it. You let me know you got a ticket guy in New York. I'll take care of you. Fantastic, thank you. All right, <laughs> God. stay well.